0: Hey, thanks for being a part of the conversation. Let's do it. Let's play it forward. These are real people, real stories. The struggle to play it forward. Episode number 577 is with grunge rocker, Steve Turner. Hello there. Good morning, Steve. How are you doing? I'm good. It's a little early, but I'm good. Dude, I got to tell you, you are doing the right thing at the right time with this book because so many people to this day speak of grunge, but I don't think they understand the story and everything that went into it before it became a national fad.
1: Yeah, that's really one of the things I, I When we were first talking about doing the book, myself and Adam, uh, I said I really wanted to to dive pretty deep into the five years at least previous to where mm-hmm. people kind of thought of as grunge, you know, exploding in 1991. There was so much more going on in the 80s. What did
0: what did you call it when you first started? Out? If you were five years ahead of the curve, then what were you just saying? Hey, we just play damn good music. You want to hear it? We're gonna play it.
1: We pretty much everybody that that were in the grunge bands, if you will, the bigger ones. Uh, we all came out of the punk rock scene. Right. We were we were playing in punk bands. Like a lot of us got started in hardcore bands. Essentially, um, there was some arty UK post punk damage going on there, and all the great uh, underground American rock of the mid 80s you know touch and go records big black sonic youth sst with black flag and meat puppets and all that kind of stuff
0: so the thing is is that what i love about the story of grunge is that it came from the underground what was it like for you when all of a sudden things began to be above ground
1: (laughs) well you know there was a few different stages to it right Uh, my, my honey started in january 1988 yeah and we were pretty early on in getting some of that underground buzz going. You know, we toured opening for Sonic Youth in 1988 and then went to Europe in early 89 and got quite a bit of attention over there. And then, so that, that was kind of exciting and it was starting to blow up a little bit. And then the 1991 mega explosion <laughs> that was that was where it got weird
0: <laughs> so true so true and i'll tell you how weird it got for us as mobile entertainers all of a sudden it wasn't about hip hop everybody wanted to start hearing this thing called grunge and 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 you know teachers were going don't do that because they're going to start bumping into each other and they and they had no idea what was about ready to hit them but 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 i physically yeah. saw it in the schools take over
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was pretty wild that, I mean, I was pretty over it by that point, you know, um, I, I think symbolically mud honey, we cut our hair short and went kind of back into the garage rock mode (laughs) a little bit in 1990. And that explosion was just it was great. I mean, it was amazing to see bands of friends, essentially, uh, exploding like that and it was very exciting at the time. Uh you know, I was at the time and still I'm glad that I didn't go into the mega rock star world. Mm-hmm. Um I that wouldn't have been a good fit for me, I don't think.
0: You said my favorite words Steve you said garage rock. Oh my God. I think my best days as a musician were in that damn garage. We it's because yeah. we envisioned it. We practiced. We we tried new things. We and girls would walk by and it's like, oh yeah, we're we're on our way. <laughs>
1: Well, you know what? I don't think I've ever been. uh, I've never practiced in a garage. Really? We were always basement bands like Seattle. Like we had basements. We had, you know, uh, damp, wet, uh, moldy basements. (laughs) So it's always been basement rock over here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Man, that's that's a good thud place. Though, I mean, going down into the basement, I mean, I mean, there's no echo down there. There's nothing happening, but you bring your own sound. It'll take over.
1: Yeah, I mean, we still, we've been practicing in Mark Arm's basement for the last 30 years. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, so many times people attach grunge music to Seattle, but but you're, you're attached to Portland. And and I bring that up because I talk to a lot of musicians from Portland, especially this group called The Loyal Order. And, and it, there's a movement going on right now in Portland.
1: Um, Portland's always had a great music scene. Uh, they, I mean, there was a lot of give and take between... Vancouver, Seattle and yeah, Portland yeah. back in the early eighties. Uh, it was very easy for the Vancouver punk bands to come down to Seattle and play. And I'm sure they made they went to Portland just as often, you know, DOA, the subhumans, all sorts of great stuff up there. Um, and Portland had, cause for starters, they had the wipers, yeah. which were a huge influence on all of us from Seattle, Olympia and Portland. The wipers loom pretty heavy over the scene. I know Kurt Cobain, that was one of his favorite bands. Um, so yeah, there's always been a great music scene in Portland. It still is. There's, you know, I'm not going to pretend I know what the kids are up to. <laughs>
0: uh, it's not my
1: job <laughs> to know what the kids are doing. But uh, there's a lot of great venues and a lot of really cool bands. And there's, you know, the House Party, that total underground kind of uh, gig world. That I don't feel welcome at because I'm too old. <laughs> okay.
0: Man, you t- you talk about Vancouver, Olympia. My God, I mean, see, I'm from Montana, so that that was my playground to go over there in that area. I always called it the Puget Sound tour.
1: Yeah, Olympia. Like, there's been so many great bands that came out of Olympia in the last 40 years, starting with Beat Happening, one of my favorites. <clears throat> you got Sleater Kinney, Bikini Kill, all the so much great uh, underground riot girl stuff was coming out of Olympia.
0: And and as a kid, Olympia beer was the superstar. I think they just gave it to us because nobody else was drinking it.
1: Okay, th- this is really weird. I, I bring this up every so often with my kids. How different going to school was when I was a kid. In grade school, we did a tour of the Olympia Brewing uh, place, the the factory, the beer factory. Yeah, like who takes like fourth graders to a beer factory for a field trip?
0: Yeah, the thing—the thing that I remember the most about that—that that, that Olympia factory was the fact that the way they mowed the lawn, the, the 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 lawn was so steep that they would they would hook it up to a rope and just let the lawnmower flow down the hill, and then they would pull it <laughs> back up and do it again. I mean, it, it was such—I I remember that brewery.
1: Yeah, it's a very iconic building. <laughs> oh my
0: god. The photographs in inside the book I mean this right here I mean did, uh, How do you release something like this to, to the new world Because I mean I'm very protective of a lot of photographs Did you go through that emotion?
1: Not so much You know um, uh, I've I'm waiting to see what my brother and sister have to say about oh. it. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's too late now. It's already out there. <laughs> it's, it's too late now. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a passion for music history because when you put a book like this together, there's got to be that teacher inside of you that's saying, "Okay, we we need to talk. Let's have a conversation. Let me show you why the lyrics were the lyrics."
1: Um, definitely. I've I have uh, Bookshelves of rock books. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be argued I'm, I'm too singularly focused on music books, but uh, yeah, I've, I've read, you know, and I still read all sorts of music books. Uh, the most recent one I guess finished was Kid Congo Powers' uh, autobiography, which is awesome.
0: Do you learn from that? Are you inspired to pick up a writing instrument or your guitar and and, and really get into it?
1: Yeah, it's also just fun. The the I guess the you know the little weird details that you wouldn't know about musicians and scenes. Uh, that, that's what's always fascinated me, getting way off into the weeds of the details. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I'm with you on that because, I mean, that's, that's like one of the reasons why when I watch these rockumentaries on Netflix and things, if it, if it's not the star talking, I got to go because I don't want to hear somebody else's interpretation. I want to hear that that dirt. I want to hear the, oh, my God, they went through hell.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of dirt, I sh- I really did enjoy that uh, Motley Crue, uh, <laughs> yeah. Rocky Mickey or whatever the heck you want to call it. Yeah, uh, I, it was just so cheeseball. I loved it. <laughs> it but but it, to
0: me, it was just so them. And it's like, okay, that's exactly how I want my my band. I want them to be really kind of weird, like like they're almost insane.
1: Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> so
0: now with the, the music scene, was it like Sunset Strip? I mean, come on, to be underground like that and people coming in and, and going to these live performances, you know, there's got to be something better than that beauty of Sunset Strip.
1: I don't think it really had much to do with that kind of thing. The, the punk scene, there was, you know, there was suburban kids like myself and I was fairly earnest. I considered myself straight edge when i was a teenager you know minor threat was a huge deal and that whole scene made sense to me um there was you know it wasn't it didn't seem particularly sleazy or anything It just seemed like a bunch of kids having a good time yeah. like there's was, it was a pretty small scene the seattle world and we would you know by the time we were all 21 beer crept in and then some drugs obviously crept into the seattle scene
0: Man, I, I giggle when you say messed up because right, right away, I, I remember in, in our garage band, it, there was always somebody in the band that was either the beer drinker or the drug taker. And it's like, can we just all get along for at least one night? And and, and you're right. It, it is it is a giant mess that just happens to create music.
1: Yeah. A lot of chaos.
0: <laughs> there is. And, and how music happened, I do not know. I just know this is what we're supposed to do. This is our playlist. Let's get it done. and And then we can just split and go home.
1: yeah I mean but for the kind of scene that I was in you went home and you lived with the same people Oh my god <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I, You know we, I, we spent years living in group homes With each other like Totally just in each other's business all the time
0: Do you still have that original guitar? Or the ones from those early days? Because I mean I, that, that one that you see with me in that picture Is my Ibanez Flying V And and there are times uh, man That little monkey and I have a dance And it's it's like God you're still there you 17 year old punk
1: Well my uh, My um, Main original guitar by the time Mudhoney started was a 1965 Fender Mustang. Oh, my God. A baby blue one. And then Mark got a baby blue Hagstrom. So then Matt Lucan, our bassist, he painted his guitar baby blue. <laughs> we all had baby blue guitars and an old baby blue van as well. Why, uh, did, uh,
0: why didn't you call yourself baby blue then?
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. We should, have. we should have been the baby blues. But, uh, um, I, the, I think the second time I went to Australia in 1990, we went, we went to Australia twice in 1990, and I ended up selling it to um, our booking agent down there. He uh-huh. was giving it as a gift to a buddy, a slightly younger musician. And uh, my my original baby blue Mustang is still in Australia, and there's still it's still it doesn't belong to the person it was originally given to, but it's still in the music scene down there. It still exists. Uh, somewhere in the suburbs of Sydney. Oh my
0: God! <laughs> Can you imagine if you made that connection? Because I, I'm reminded of a uh, Peter Frampton when he reconnected with his guitar and how emotional he is even today.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. I, I. I. You know. I'm glad it's still getting used mm-hmm. down there. Um. It's not just in the closet of a 50 something year old dude that used to play in a band. It's still being used. So th- that makes me feel good. I was hoping I might see it. There was there was some threats of. You know, the friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing that was going to bring it to one of the shows, but it didn't quite happen.
0: <laughs> wow. You just got to get Keanu Reeves and then eventually it'll all happen because we're all connected to Keanu Reeves somehow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you talk about that punk music scene and, and I, I, I laugh inside because I remember Johnny Rotten telling me, I don't play punk music. I play the blues. And I'm going, oh, my God. I mean, but, but, but I mean, you speak of it with pride in that, that my God, we were that band.
1: Sure. Like, uh, you know, punk, punk rock, you know, to quote the minute it changed my life. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't much interested in music, you know, except, you know, Irish folk music and a few little weird pop hits and stuff. And uh, when I, I, heard punk rock, it was a game changer for me. It, it made sense. It was kids playing it. Uh, one of the, the second show I went to, there was a local band called soldier and, they were my age and they were up on stage playing. I was 15 at the time. Um, and that, that shocked me. You know I didn't even think that was possible. So uh, that was a big change. I think with punk rocket was the leveling of the play field, you know anybody could do it.
0: Mm-hmm. So what was it like if it, being 15 years old, you're, you're still in high school, how the hell did that play out in school?
1: It didn't go well. <laughs> I, 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 I remember the day I showed up. I outed myself as a punk rocker. And I I pretty much, I knew it was going to happen, but I pretty much lost the friends I had at school. Yep, yep. But that was fine because I moved on. I had, uh, I discovered the skateboarding world and those were my friends now. They were all a little bit older than me and, uh, you know, a lot cooler than my classmates.
0: Yeah, cuz we moved from, you know, the where the jocks were hanging out, you know, the quarterback for the high school team to suddenly when people found out that we were the band that was going to play at homecoming, all of a sudden we were in Freak Corner where everybody was smoking cigarettes and, you know, and we're yeah. wearing black.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but uh I there weren't any other punk rockers at my high school. That was the problem. I was alone. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it wasn't lonely. It was a lonely place because people didn't understand it. Radio really wasn't playing it. If it wasn't Def nope. Leppard or if it wasn't country music, it wasn't getting any type of of airspace.
1: Yeah, you know, we had the community radio station in Seattle. That the two of them actually at the time, and that that was. That was good. At least there was there was one stab at a new wave radio station that started in nineteen seventy nine or no, actually I think it started New Year's Day nineteen eighty. Wow. And it was the rock of the eighties, KZAM, and it didn't last long. <laughs> wow.
0: Yeah, Seattle was like that. The, the radio scene was that's where everybody wanted to go up in the Pacific Northwest. But to get there, you had to go through Spokane. Did you ever have to play there? Because Spokane just seems to be that one place. It's like uh, okay, if we have to, we'll do it.
1: We um, we haven't played Spokane that many times through the years. But wow. every time we do, it's always a blast. Really? Uh, and now there's, there's been a club there. I think it survived the pandemic and uh, we are playing there in the fall again. Um, wow. We have some friends there, people that have migrated to Spokane from Seattle, or they started in Spokane, moved to Seattle for a while and then moved back. So we, we've got some friends there and my girlfriend's got family there. Wow. Um, and the shows always seem to be good. It's a, bit of a depressing place yeah, there's a, yeah there's, a, there's a big meth problem there and stuff yeah. uh, but it's it's a pretty cool place it, you know it's gotten a lot better well say that.
0: when we would go to Spokane we'd make a left hand turn and go down to Yakima so we could get some of those dang Washington peaches
1: yeah my, my family is based in Yakima really basically. oh my god my, sister, <laughs> my sister's lived there for almost 40 years now and she had six kids and at least well, three of them Still live in Yakima oh. So she's got the, the, the clan is based in Yakima I love Yakima <laughs>
0: so, so do I and, and the fact that That professional bowler What was it Earl Anthony came from Yakima It was it, That became <laughs> like The capital of my heart As a kid
1: Huh, that's funny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so when you, when you, when you transfer your creative energy from writing songs into a book, what did you go through inside that, that, that creative mind of yours? Because all of a sudden it wasn't keeping it short and poetic and, and making sure you rhyme you, you had to physically tell a story.
1: Well, you know, I had a, a, a co-writer, remember Adam <laughs> and, uh, we talked, about kind of the the theories of what i wanted to do i mean it was his idea i didn't uh, you know i I had to think about it and it was the early stages of the pandemic so i really wasn't doing much else (laughs) and uh you know like i said i wanted to focus quite a bit on the days before the big explosion in Mm -hmm. seattle and i also wanted to talk a lot about my life after the big explosion if you will yeah and uh how to remain creative as you get older and you have responsibilities and stuff i thought that was a important part of the story and not just for me but for a lot of other people my age and and this generation that keep being creative for longer than our parents and grandparents did i would say you know um, we we keep just doing the same stuff we did when we were younger so uh you know it was a lot of zoom meetings and talking and a lot of uh, transcribing and editing, yeah. <laughs> essentially.
0: So then uh, the, what what is your real age in the way? Of, in other words, I'm 61, but in reality, I'm still a 16-year-old punk-ass kid because th- I, I run my life that way. I run around that way. Do you feel like you're still that teenager as well?
1: Well, you know, I'm 58, and uh, I'm not the oldest guy in Mud Honey. That would be Mark Arm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I have, I've got two adult kids at this point. They both still live with me They're 18 and 23 Um, And That changes things quite a bit I think It does Having that part of the world And having to figure out How to support a family uh, And still remain creative You know Um, How do you do that uh, Without getting completely burnt out
0: (laughs) So true And I see I've always called Creativity an addiction How am I going to feed that monster today Figure it out dude Keep going
1: Yeah yeah totally And that's what's Inspiring to me About a lot of the musicians around me that are my similar age and i mean i've been you know lucky i've gotten a lot of acclaim and success through the years you know it's not my main job but i got a lot of uh pats on the back for being a musician and a lot of my friends didn't get nearly that but they still do it anyway because yeah. it's a passion wow. and that inspires me
0: wow steve you got to come back to this show anytime in the future man use this show as your platform to get your word out there buddy <laughs>
1: All right, thanks.
0: Well, you be brilliant today, okay?
1: All right, I'm trying. It's early, but I'm trying. (laughs) All right.